Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm very glad to be joined this week again uh, by Ross Ramsey, executive editor of the Texas Tribune. Uh, welcome, Ross. How are you doing? How are you, sir? Uh, you know, I'm I'm well. It's kind of nice to I've I've been saying this the last few weeks, and it, it's I should be settled in now, but I'm still really happy to be back in the studio rather than online and with our uh, great crew here and and back on campus. So it's nice to be back in the world of 3D. Exactly. Uh, I, I appreciate you being here, uh, knowing that you are preparing to move, um, among other things, uh, move houses, I should say. Um, yeah. But you know, I. I wanted to check in on the range of issues that you focused on in, uh, as I count them, your last four columns over the last week, which is, you know, if we, you know, I guess it technically eight days given the rhythm of publication, but just to run down the topics you've done, you, you talked about public ed and an analysis of kind of the issue terrain and what Texas leaders seem to be paying attention to right now. You wrote about right. broadband and... Um, the ongoing conversation and the, the the pace of the efforts to bring high-speed internet to areas of the state without it. Uh, you wrote about abortion. And then this morning, you wrote a, a piece on redistricting, talking about the implications of, of gerrymandering. I, I want to set the abortion column aside for just a moment. I mean, it many would argue that it fits just perfectly in this, but and, and I think it does. But as I look at the columns on public ed, on broadband, on redistricting, I see you focusing on, you know, the fundamentals of the state's infrastructure. Um, and, and again, mm -hmm. I don't want to sell abortion short as part of the state's health infrastructure, but it is a little bit different than the, the structural nature of these other issues. Now, am I imagining things? Is just this just the the random play of searching for column topics that are, you know, that are current, or are you mulling the fundamentals here? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, this is part of a bigger um, sort of series of columns I've been writing. I'm, you know, I'm retiring at the end of the month, and I thought, you know, we sat down with an editor here, I am Mitra, who you know, and talked about, you know, what do we want to do with the last columns, and decided to sort of take on a, you know, a long series of columns on if you were going to go at government and sort of move the big pieces first and stop moving the little pieces, what would you move around? And the, and the part that you've sort of isolated here is a section on infrastructure. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's like I say, it's part of the series that, you know, includes a lot of the big things government does. Um, but this uh, last series or this, these last most recent columns with the exception of abortion are really about infrastructure. And the idea here is really, if you set, um, you can't really do this, but if you set politics aside, what would government be working on? And by the way, how are they doing it? And that's sort of the general idea. And then you go topic by topic. 
and say, well, what about broadband and how are we doing there? And what's going on over here with um, school finance and schools and education in general? And what, you know, if the legislature was only doing one or two or three things, what would they be and how are they doing with them? Sort of the general thing. All right. Well, I, I want to unpack a few of those things. And, and, and you know, I'll, it's funny you say, you know, what, you know, how can we talk about this separate from politics? And I think you, in each of these columns, it's almost as if it's almost impossible to do that to some degree. Impossible is a strong word. It's a, but it's a matter, I guess, of, of pride of place. So tell you know, start with education. And, and so, so tell me, as you looked and you picked education as part of this, tell me what you saw. Well, you see two things going on. You know, one of them is in the, you know, and I, you know, I know it's a sort of a false split, but you know, it's a useful one. In the political world, the conversation about education is not really about education. It's about critical race theory and what's in books and libraries and things that are subjects for campaigning and subjects for the for stumping, for the politicians out on the trail talking about, you know, we need to rein in these teachers or we need to rein in these professors or we need to, you know, do this or look what they're teaching your children it's all that kind of stuff, and it's and it's sort of political and culturally oriented, and it's designed, you know, as it you know as it is appropriate, I guess, in a in a political campaign to stir voters and to get them to look at issues that a particular politician is working on and uh, has some advantage or feels that he or she has some advantage over an opponent. But if you look at schools and you say, what's really going on in schools, what should we be talking about or what else might we be talking about if we weren't in campaigns? You know, you've got this giant, you know, the sort of the glaring problem is this giant uh, learning gap that occurred during the pandemic when we sent all the kids home for a bit, you know, depending on the school district, two or three or sometimes even four semesters. And the kids are falling behind. And it's really evident in the test scores. If you look at, you know, how the test scores were going in 2019 and how they're going now, um, the kids have fallen off. This this uh, pandemic streak of virtual learning left a real mark on these kids. And if you think about, you know, you can't look at education and say, you know, it's working most of the time. It didn't work for this contingent of children. And this cohort, you know, you need to catch them up. You need to do some things to bring them to the levels they would have been had they been in class, and you need to do it while they're still in school. So you need to act pretty quickly. Uh, teachers are jumping up and down about this. Um, superintendents are jumping up and down about this. It's not a particularly spicy political issue, but it's a real issue and one of the main things the government does. So that's that was how I did that split. I looked at it and said, you know, what else might they be, might they be looking at? And I, I didn't get to other things. Like, you know, we've got a, a teacher shortage problem going on that's I think going to be evident this summer when we find out how many teachers are really dissatisfied enough to, to quit and how many people are coming into the profession. And then we figure out how do we open the schools for five and a half million kids um, without all the teachers that we supposedly need. You know, it's, it's interesting how you lay, as you lay that out, I mean, in some ways, and, and we get to play the old guys now, I mean, the, the focus on content is is not new that is the co the focus on curriculum and it's not new from both sides this has been kind of a frontline 
periodically in education, you know, thinking back, you know, you may remember where to locate this in time a little better than I do, but it seems to me somewhere between eight and 12 years ago, there was a lot of action at the State Board of Education on the content of textbooks that, you know, had a lot of, you know, sort of cult, the, the cultural overtones and, and the cultural politics that you're talking about right now. Right. Part of the fight then was Confederates and, you know, how, how do we present the Civil War and how do we teach that history? Now it's much more about race and how do we present that history if we present that history at all. And it's become, you know, it's, it's, it's to some extent, you know, I guess it was then, but, to, but now it is certainly a national issue as much as it is a state issue. This, this well, conversation is not bound by the Texas border. Yeah, and now it's you know it's it's got the extra element of you know gender gender and sexual identity that that have been plugged into this. You know, I I want to move on from education in a minute, but I mean it it seems to me, and I don't I think this is kind of implied in what you're saying, but if we put this into the trajectory of education politics over the last two to three legislative sessions, you know, and I wonder if you agree with this. I mean, it feels to me. Like what this is pointing to is something of a missed opportunity, because as we go into the next legislative session, unless things really shift dramatically, the state is going to be awash in money, you know, between federal money. And th- and this came up, comes up in the broadband column that you did that, you know, much of the broadband money is going to be is going to be sourced federally. But we don't know the specifics. But in terms of education, the state is going to be awash in money. We took a, a, some initial steps that in in the 2019 session to put some more money into, into public education and to start thinking about tinkering with the formulas. This is, of course, linked to property taxes. But it looks to me that, you know, we're headed towards a missed opportunity as a result of the current focus that you're talking about and the pivot to these sort of more, you know, what you're thinking of is uh, as more campaign oriented issues. I guess what I'm wondering is, is it going to, you know, is it going to be a little more deeply rooted than that by the time we get to the session? Well, I think, you know, every election determines what the next legislature is going to do. You can tell in January and February of a legislative year, which is every two years, what happened in the elections in November, the, in the November, a couple of months before. Um, and people campaign on all of these things, and then they go to Austin or they go to Washington, and they feel like they need to fulfill their promises, and they feel like they need to mend whatever, you know, slights voters found them. You know, a great example of this was the Republicans in Texas got something of a rebuke in the 2018 elections. They didn't lose. Uh, they lost some seats in the legislature. They didn't lose any statewide seats. But a lot of those races were close in ways they hadn't been close in ages. And everybody kind of got a wake-up call there. And they came into the 2019 legislative session. Uh, the 2017 legislative session was a big fight, among other things, about uh, the so-called bathroom bill, which was you know, where transgender people use, which restroom transgender people were allowed to use in public buildings. And it was a big, nasty culture war fight. They came back somewhat admonished in the 2018 election and in 2019 said, okay, we're not going to do anything but meat and potatoes stuff. And as you said a minute ago, they worked on school finance. They tried to change the formula so that it's harder for property taxes to go up as fast as they have been. They didn't actually cut taxes or get tax relief, but 
you know, tax rates are going down, uh, appraisals are going up, taxes are going up, but they took a swing at it. Now they're coming in and they've got, you know, according to Glenn Hager, the state controller, 12 to $13 billion in the state's rainy day fund, the economic stabilization fund, it's a kind of savings account, and another 12 or $13 billion that's going to be in surplus. And that's his estimate now, and it keeps getting bigger. And like you say, they're going to walk into the next session with something like $25 billion extra dollars. What are they going to do with it? Are they going to do some kind of a moonshot for education? Are they going to do some kind of a moonshot at property taxes? They've got a lot of money, and um, they haven't really sort of um, said what they want to do with it yet. They've got a lot of possibilities that they don't ordinarily have. Well, and as you say, I mean, the tone of the campaign and, and the outcome of the election has a way of of shaping that, and, and so I, we'll have to see. Now, I, I'm going to use you mentioning... Uh, the comptroller Glenn Hager is a good transition to broadband. Broadband feels to me a little bit more like your traditional infrastructure issue in Texas, and and not one quite as fraught as as education, but a little more like say transportation and water. In that, you know, there are a lot of stakeholders in in these kind of old school infrastructure. You know, call it non social infrastructure issues. Um, and they they percolate and take a long time to get all the stakeholders together to make a move. And it, it seems like we're, we're in that area with broadband. Does that sound right to you? I mean, we had a big bill last time. Yeah. We've got the federal bill. You wrote about this in the column. And it seems like that is getting closer and a little yeah, less broad. You know, if you, uh, you know this, if you want, went to a legislator in Texas three sessions ago, which would have been six years ago, and said, you know, hey, what do you think about expanding broadcam- broadband, making it available to more people, and making it affordable to people who ha- might have it at the curb and can't afford to get it into the house, they would have said, why are we paying, why is the state paying for people to get Netflix? Um, the pandemic came along and made it very clear that, you know, one of the, one of the arguments that had been made was, really serious, which is, this isn't about Netflix, this is about telemedicine, it's about education, it's about work, it's about how we live now, and if you don't have broadband access, high-speed broadband access, you're not going to be able to participate in all of the things that you should be able to participate in as a Texan. It's now infrastructure and not moved kind of from luxury to necessity, and they bought that. I mean, during the pandemic, that convinced, you know, virtually everybody in the legislature and you're right, it's not as much a political event as it is, you know, there are politics in it, but it's more vendor politics and provider politics than it is, you know, politics about whether or not we should do broadband. Yeah, the money a- is the thing here. It's really expensive. And and the federal infrastructure bill has a bunch of money. I think it's $42.5 billion nationally for broadband. And they told the states, you need to map house by house, property by property, where you do and don't have broadband, and then send that in. And based on those maps, the FCC and others will allocate this $42.5 billion. So the, the wild guess right now is Texas will get between $1 and $4 billion out of the federal thing to expand access to broadband where it's not available now and to expand uh, or to make it more affordable, You know, subsidize it to some extent, in places where people have access to it, but but it's beyond their means. And um, they're working on it. It's actually one of those places where you can look at government, say government's doing here what it's supposed to be doing. They're concentrating on it. They're getting to work on it. 
The problem is that it's a very slow process, you know, and, and a lot of that's kind of built into your question. It's a lot of vendors. It's a lot of differing technologies. It's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of money. Yeah. There's, uh, yeah. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of big, big corporate players involved in this. I mean, although there's a, in terms of the, 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 the counting votes part of this, it's occurring to me, there is something about this that's a little bit like education in that, you know, there are ways you can align this because of where the underserved populations are. There are There's potential here for building rural urban coalitions that I think is always helpful in the legislature, um, given the way things are, are organized. That kind of points us towards redistricting, but I want to ask you one more political thing about the broadband piece. Um, you know, your column has something that I, I find a little, it's almost like a little bit of an Easter egg that depends on your, you know, like your engagement with this and how you watch the politics. I find the centrality of the control of the comptroller's office to this very interesting, not only in policy, but certainly in political terms. Am I overreading that? I don't think so. You know, the legislature put it over there, I think, to get it a little bit out of legislative reach. And also, you know, we just had this big mess with electricity and the PUC and public, you know, public utility regulators in Texas in February of 2021. And they're still, you know, working that out on the electric generation side. And in another world, you might hand all of these issues to the public utility commission and you might hand it to, you know, those regulators. Yeah. Not really the time for that. (laughs) They said, exactly. Uh, You you guys worry about electricity and we'll let somebody else worry about this. The other thing is that it is a pile of money and the controller is also the state treasurer. And, you know, that's a, that's a reasonable place to uh, send the federal money and have them write the checks. Uh, It's interesting. If you do these projects, you don't distribute the money necessarily to the locals. You distribute it, you know, locally and to vendors and things and sometimes it'll go through cities and sometimes through counties but it all starts at the state and they decided to put it in the controller's office instead of in a you know where where telephones have traditionally been regulated or in the governor's office where you know other states are doing the infrastructure spending and things like that straight through their governor's office and and in fact the governor had you know in in the midst of the process of producing the legislation that, that we've seen in the discussion the governor had appointed a broadband commission, and when the dust cleared, I find it very authority, very interesting that the authority or a lot of latitude, shall we say, wound up in the comptroller's office. I, I don't want to be gauche, but um, I mean, I do want to be gauche. You but know, why not? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why I'm acting this way with you of all people. Um, you know, to be gauche, um, the comptroller is one of the 800 pound gorillas waiting in the wings in terms of the next era of political change in the state. In, in electoral politics statewide, is he not? He is. Um, I think he's, you know, I mean, controllers are always positioned. It's one of those offices that's positioned to move up. There's two state offices that are involved basically in everything. Uh, one of them is the controller because that's where all the money goes through. And, you know, they all the state employees are paid out of there. All the money comes into the treasury. It's where taxes are collected. They're in every kind of deal. And the people that work over there are aware pretty much of everything going on in government. The other place that's kind of like that is the attorney general's office, because that's where all the all the rules and regulations and lawsuits and all of that kind of stuff goes through. So they're really in the loop. And over time, controllers and attorneys general in Texas 
have been, you know, that those are two of the seedbeds for, that's where governors come from, and that's where lieutenant governors come from, sometimes senators and things like that. Glenn Hager's positioned really well right now. He's in, he's, you know, uh, the conservatives in the party like him, the moderates in the party like him, the Democrats don't hate him. Uh, he's been running a pretty, you know, nice, uh, op, you know, I guess if you're looking at the future and you're saying, you know, who's going to be potentially on the ballot in 2024 or 26 or 28, Hager's kind of at the top of your list. He's one of those names. Uh, Greg Abbott's already at the top. Dan Patrick's a lieutenant governor, uh, probably aging out pretty soon. The attorney general is in legal trouble. Um, Hager's kind of a, a, a guy to watch. Okay, redistricting. Uh, and I think in terms of, you know, as we move a little into the political realm now, you know, th this is in many ways the parent of all, you know, structural institutional quote unquote problems in the state. Certainly, you know, not the first time we've talked about it, you know, publicly or privately or the first time you've right. written about it. Um, you do a good, you know, a really helpful column. I think there's a, there's a lot of public service in that column in terms of uh, sorting out you know, a, a take on how many competitive seats there are, et cetera, et cetera. But I'll let people read that in the column itself, and, and we're going to run out of time. So I do want to say, you know, it's perpetually an argument that redistricting has a negative effect on the responsiveness on the system, on party competition, et cetera. Right. You know, I don't think we need right. to rehash all of that per se. But I do want to ask you, you know, in terms of historical perspective— is there something this time that's worse than before or not? Or is it just business as usual? You know, in other words, how do we place this redistricting, uh, the results of this redistricting round in historical context? And, and how does it help us explain where we are at this moment in the state? This was my fourth redistricting. Um, and so every 10 years you see this. And actually, I'm old enough to have seen the Democrats do it. And, and uh, guess what? You know, they're just as bad. Um, the people in power draw seats for the people in power, and they've gotten more and more efficient at it, and the law has changed through, mostly through Supreme Court interpretations, that make it easier to draw maps that uh, have districts that are solidified, institutionalized party control. So in this Texas map, they've drawn you know, a number of seats for Republicans, I think it's 84, and 66 for Democrats, and with very few exceptions, the seats drawn for one party or the other are not contestable by the other party. And they've gotten really, really refined at this. Um, 10 years ago, and certainly 20 years ago, you would look at a map and you would say, well, this map you know, has 150 House seats on it, and 120 of them are predetermined. And isn't that outrageous that only 30 of these seats are competitive in November? Because you'd have about 30 seats where, you know, given the winds of the day and the issues and the personalities on the ballot, 30 seats could go to the Republicans or to the Democrats. Now you're down to five in the House. Um, so I guess the real difference is that, you know, even the appearance of some choice is largely gone. And the other thing that's going on is Texas, you know, because of the way the primaries work here, the primaries are way before the general election. Ours are super early They're in March. And the people that are picking which Republican and which Democrat to send to November are the most Republican Republicans and the most Democratic Democrats. They're the fire-breathing partisans. 
And so we get a turnout of 17, I think it was 17 and a half percent last month of all registered voters showed up to vote. And those people picked candidates that, because of the way the maps are drawn, are basically going into office. Uh, they'll finish it uh, next month with the runoffs. But again, that's a party crew, and it's the very partisan people, and the turnout's probably, you know, history is a guide, going to be even lower. So this has the effect over time of, you know, more and more people don't participate in the part of the election where the candidates are actually chosen, and it gives the politicians drawing the maps much greater control of who is going to get into the state legislature and into the state's congressional delegation. Yeah, I mean, I, there, there's an odd paradox at work here, I think, and I, I, you know, I could be wrong about this, but it, you know, it's interesting that the, you know, the party, you know, the Republican Party was clearly in control of redistricting this time. No surprise there. Um, but in making a less ambitious play this time than they did uh, in 2010 when they drew those maps and protect, ultimately protecting more Democrats, it's almost as if the response to the political system being more somewhat more competitive, you know, and not as competitive as a lot of, frankly, Democrats say it is, but certainly more competitive, um, actually has worked to mute the Democratic opposition, you know, through incumbent protection. And that, you know, and, and I think that's, we're going to see that, we're seeing that play out in the, in the numbers that you're talking about. I think what the Republicans saw in the mid-decade redistricting in the first decade of the century and in the 2010 redistricting is that the maps they were drawing overreached a little bit and, in fact, decayed over a decade. So you draw a map in 2010, and over the five election cycles until the next census, they would do a little bit worse each time. And they drew the maps this time. We'll see how it goes. But they drew these maps, you know, I mean, fairly openly saying, we're trying to draw persistent maps that won't erode. And maybe we won't start the decade with a supermajority, but we won't end the decade chewing our fingernails like we did last time. Right. Well, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm hoping to have Chairman Hunter on um, and to talk to him about that. I have I've had some offline conversations with him that were, you know, and not to give anything up, they weren't in confidence and he didn't say anything out of line. But I think he had a really striking experience with redistricting um, in in the last session. Now, I, I want to close out, Ross. We, we've talked... Uh, I'm going to keep my promise not to make this a send-off in the face of your impending retirement and and departure from the Tribune. But I, you know, you you set me up, though, you know, I I would feel remiss. I have to ask you then to step back and ask about your perspective as we talk about all of these fundamental issues. And again, you know, you set me up by just saying this is your fourth redistricting. It'd be malpractice for me to not do something like this. You know, you're obviously taking kind of a, you know, court vision view of where we are. And we've talked, you know, we've talked a lot, you know, in working on on polling about the rising wrong track judgments about the path the state is on, um, about the increasingly sour mood of Texans. And some of that obviously has some some more recent correlates, given what the last couple of years have looked like. Um but I'm still, uh, you know, I want to ask you the right track, wrong track question. <laughs> you know, you've been looking at the fundamentals, you know, as you step back from this a little bit, 
do you see this as a short-term fluctuation or do you, do you think something more fundamental is going on here? And, and, you know, what's your sense of the prospects? I think, you know, I would say generally wrong track. And I would say, you know, oftentimes the people in politics, and, and I, this is across parties. And, you know, I just think the people that get elected are often more focused right now on the political issues that move those small groups of voters in primaries than they are on the real sort of outlook and position and needs of the state. And that if you stand back and say, what are our biggest problems and what are we doing about them? Um, if you walk into work, you know, as a governor and say, how does Texas become the best public school system in the country? Instead of, you know, saying whatever it is you're saying on the campaign trail, then you get a different kind of governance. And, you know, there's a, you know, whenever I get pessimistic about the way things are going, you know, it's also true that whenever there's a big problem that presents itself, when, you know, there's a really big issue that overwhelms the politics, politicians listen to the public that wants them to fix things. You know, you see it on a national level when you get something like a, a 9-11, uh, when everybody stops barking at each other and starts working the problem. Um, one of my favorite analogies for this is in the movie Apollo 13, when the astronauts are in space, you've seen this movie, when the astronauts are in space and they get a problem, and you know, for a second there, everybody at NASA is running around like a chicken with their head cut off, and the main guy says, people settle down, work the problem. And legislators tend to do that. Um, when there's a big urgent need and voters are looking to them for leadership, they're not very good at it sort of on their own. And we're at one of those periods where the voters aren't, honestly, aren't particularly paying attention. 82.5% of us didn't vote in the primaries. And the people who are paying attention aren't talking about the big stuff. So the politicians aren't talking about the big stuff. And we're getting, we have some big problems that really need to be solved. And that was really the impetus for this series of columns here at the end of my ride. You know, I started with one about Fred Rogers and about Apollo 13 back in early March and have just been writing about these problems. And that's, that's really the design of it. And that's kind of how I feel about it. I'm going to think of that as I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm not going to characterize that position, but I'm going to think about it and I'll get back to you on, on how I, sh how I should <laughs> characterize that. I was going to say guardedly sometimes, optimistic, sometimes but I'm not sure I really, here. I'm not sure that's quite right either, but I like the way you laid that out. Uh, Ross Ramsey, thanks for being here today and all the times that you've been here before. And uh, I hope, you know, after you take a well-deserved post-retirement hiatus, if you're in a direction to come back, we can have you back. And if not, then I'll drill you over beers. Sounds, sounds fair to me. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks again to Ross Ramsey. Thanks to our excellent production team in the audio studio in the Liberal Arts Development Studio at UT Austin. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can find lots more data, writing, uh, material on Texas politics at the Texas Politics Project website, www.texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Uh, I'm Jim Henson, and we'll be back soon with another Second Reading podcast. Thanks for listening. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 